Welcome to the Men Among Demons podcast. In a disoriented world, this is the podcast that asks what would happen if we truly put Christ at the center of our thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Opperwall. And I'm your host, Dr. Greg Weeb. Hi, Greg. Hey, man. Well, Greg, I wanted to ask you for this episode about war. And the reason is probably obvious. It's on everybody's mind. We've got a war going on in Ukraine, Russian invasion. Um, And I also think you're an interesting person to talk to in this topic, because prior to being Orthodox, you were uh, Mennonites. Uh, and just for some listeners who might not be familiar, because I, we live in a little world where people are very familiar with the Mennonite tradition, but a lot of people outside of our little bubble often think that being a Mennonite means you, you know, ride around in a horse and buggy and, uh, uh, you know, basically an Amish old order Mennonites. That is true, but you're not an old order Mennonite. So you, you grew up, you know, living a, that's a, right. A, a life with normal interactions, what we would call normal interactions with technology. There's a whole other <laughs> Can of worms. Yep. Uh, anyway, you know, having a, little, a television, a car, a little too normal. Let's say you you couldn't be told apart from the people around you. Yeah, no, uh, that's right. but one of the things that that is there in in um, really all Mennonite traditions, and whether old order or not, is a commitment to pacifism, sort of absolute pacifism. So I wonder what you're thinking about um, what's going on right now in Ukraine, and also war more generally. Um, Especially with respect to, you know, what we always do on the show, trying to put Christ at the center of our thinking and, and think about the angelic and the demonic. So that's what I'll give you. What are you thinking? I have no idea what to think anymore about anything like that. <laughs> Episode done. Um, yeah, you know, so, well, it was sort of funny because, uh, so growing up, I grew up as a Mennonite brethren. And, uh, that the Mennonite brethren have their origins in a split with the, with, um, the Mennonite church in, um, in Russia. Now I'm going to get, I'm going to get, uh, staked on some of these details. If I, if I dive in too much by anybody who's listening, who has a more historical background than me, I'm thinking of one person in particular. Um, but anyways, um, and they, the Mennonite brethren are more evangelical, um, in terms of North American Christianity, they're the more evangelical uh, side of, of Anabaptism. And so, you know, growing up, I didn't have that much of a, I didn't really have an awareness of pacifism at all. And, and I kind of learned it going to a Mennonite university. I had started in music and, and, and shifted over late undergrad uh, career to studying theology I basically did a peace studies degree uh, as my as my uh, bachelor of arts, and uh, because I was because I, I felt uh, like I was learning something that I should have been I should have known all, the whole time, so I sort of became um, was really in, I was really into pacifism, and it in a certain sense it you know it all seemed very clear, and it's almost like a monastic vision of peaceableness for the whole community. In its best lights, I think I think that's what's going on in in Anabaptism. It's like this 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 notion that you know if you're gonna if you're gonna commit yourself to Christ, like you got to be all in, right? And his and his call to us is very stark. It's very extreme, and it very explicitly calls one to lay down one's life. 
uh, after, after his pattern, right? He lays down his life for his friends and that we are to love our enemies and that the, the mechanisms for community reconciliation are, you know, Matthew 18, that we, that we approach one another, uh, in a spirit of correction and admonition, but it's not, you know, it's a rejection of the sword as a tool of, of church discipline. Uh, and a lot of that like was very enticing and made a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, like, I think it works to the extent that it's actually a manifestation of courage, but I don't think that's what it is in a lot of cases. I think a lot of pacifism has been a manifestation of cowardice and that's like, that's really difficult it's difficult for me to think through because my own grandfather, I mean, a lot of people, it's Canadian, right? A lot of our grandfathers of, of our generation, I'm now 40 years old. For my peers, a lot of our grandparents, a lot of our grandfathers fought in the war. My grandfather was a conscientious objector and he went and he, uh, he went to a work camp. If I, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, instead of fighting in the war. Um, so it's, it's difficult to know how to, that world war two, obviously. It's difficult to know now how to think about it. I remember as an undergrad student, I was like, I thought really, I thought really highly of that. Um, I de- remember dedicating a paper. I did a, wrote a paper on World War II and dedicated it to my my uh, grandfather who had already was already uh, passed by that point. Um, and now my feelings are much more ambivalent, but I, it's not like they're strongly in the other direction either. So when you talk about like a war. Like you, you know, Russia invading Ukraine. I don't know. I think in I think the where I'm at right now, I get a lot more. I get a lot more why, as a Ukrainian, you you, you might <laughs> you might pick up arms to defend your country. Well, I was just going to ask you there. I mean, would you, if your grandfather was alive today and was a Ukrainian in Ukraine, or anyone in Ukraine, and decided to declare himself a conscientious objector and refuse to participate in that. Would you have the same feeling of, of pride about that? Would that, would that read the same to you? I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel that I feel about that. Like to object, object to war for war's sake, uh, object to war for a kind of like simplified pacifism's sake. See, my, my instinct is that cause you, and you brought up <clears throat> the courage piece, which is interesting, but, my own instinct is that if he were Ukrainian and said, no, you know, I'm a conscientious objector. I, I refuse to do lift, you know, do anything to prevent the Russians or anything violent, I guess. Maybe there's a distinction mm-hmm. there. That's important. Maybe that does matter, but, but um, I refuse to, you know, do anything violent to prevent the Russians from invading this country and you know, taking over whatever, whatever on earth mm-hmm. is the Russian objective. Um, <laughs> I don't think that would read as well to me. It, but if you flip it around and he is in Russia and said, you know, I refuse to have anything to do with this invasion. Right. That, that seems to, I think I'd be pretty, uh, I, you know, I think I'd look up to that person. It takes a lot of courage to do that, especially in Russia right now. I mean, you could even construe it like I'd be open to an argument that even on the, on the side of Ukraine, you, and you thought that you wanted Ukraine to survive, but you thought, you know what? There are, there are Christians among the Russians who are who are attacking us, and I and I refuse to take up arms against other Christians. 
even even at the risk of alienating myself um from my from my fellow ukrainians like you know i'd be you know uh, that's that's not that's not an argument i could easily dismiss right like one for one for theological reasons i mean let me let me put it to you this way um you know i've done i'm in some i'm in the midst of some vocational discernment um in terms of in terms of uh vocational clerical discernment in the and the orthodox church and the thought occurred to me just in whatever in these last in these last weeks um in the in this in the ukraine crisis um the thought occurred to me like well oh you know if what would i you know what would i do if i were in that situation if i you know uh, i were as a man as a 40 year old able-bodied man that there's just no other way no way i could not pick up arms and the thought occurred to me well if i was clergy you know then i would i would be able to get out of it right i wouldn't i wouldn't have to pick up and fight and then the thought occurred to me, like, if you think of the, if you're thinking of the priesthood, I'm telling myself, if you're thinking of the priesthood as a way to save your life. <laughs> right. And <clears throat> something's gone wrong. Whereas if, you know, I think it's, I think it should be possible to be in, in a situation on either side where you, you might very well get struck by Christian principles not to fight to manifest the cross to manifest one's to manifest the self-sacrifice of Christ for one's for one's brothers and in fact even one's enemies that there that there is a way to do it i like to me in terms of what i learned about pacifism in my younger days that is what has stuck with me like there are reasons not not to fight but they can't be but the spiritual discernment is the is the difficult part, right? If because how do you know it's not just because you're a coward, which is at that in- initial impulse about the about the priest. Well, if I was a priest, I, I could I could get out of I could get out of it, right? And then it's like mm, that's a cowardly impulse, and you can identify I can identify that in myself. Uh, that's an impulse to save my life when Christ has precisely called me to lose it, to give it up. But I think that. You know, so how how do you how you tell? Of course, is is a is a matter of some significant spiritual discernment, but I think it's there. I think the possibility is there. I think, and even even a calling. I think there's even a calling. That's a very extreme calling, not to not to pick up arms against one's one's neighbors for the sake of Christ. It seems like this situation has to already break first. And and that's one of the really tricky things. Like I think about, it seems, it seems anyway, relatively straightforward from where, if you're sitting in Canada, that the Russian invasion is a, is a pretty just open active aggression against a, a sovereign nation. It's not something we tolerate anymore. We used to not that long ago think that that was maybe fine sometimes. I mean, well, really, we still do think that that's fine sometimes. Actually, I 
I hundred percent take back what I just said. We we absolutely tolerate it in every way, shape, or form when we think it's you know okay. When it's Afghanistan or Iraq, that's fine. You can invade those countries for for a variety of reasons. It seems like it's not tolerable to invade Ukraine, and I don't agree. I I, I don't disagree. I I think it was I was quite shocked that Russia would do this. Um, the purpose just seems. I, I don't get it. I don't get anything at all about what's happening. Um, but so someone has to have kind of broken the situation first. And that's, it strikes me as one of the reasons things are so tricky. Because then you you, you sort of have to get to some degree into the, this kind of question of who's at fault. And that's always going to be really problematic. So if you take Russia invades Ukraine, okay, it seems like Russia's at fault, seems like. So if I'm in Ukraine, taking up arms and being willing to die to lay down my life by fighting, um, may seem like the right thing to do. It, and that, as an aside, that exact passage that you brought up as part of the pacifist tradition is, is the one I hear most often used when people, Christians, including Orthodox Christians, justify fighting as a soldier or fighting in a war to, to lay down your life for your friends. So it scans that way. It seems to scan that way if you look at you, the Ukrainian side. On the Russian side, it seems like there isn't that there. And I think that's one of the reasons that this becomes really spiritually fraught and fraught from point of view of discernment, because it is, uh, in reality, these things are are usually not all that terribly clear. Um, this is one of the reasons I think we often go back to the Second World War in retrospect, because now that we know what was happening near the end of the war with the doing you know, of the genocide, the Holocaust, we feel very much like it was, you know, it's now sort of crystal clear who were the good guys, um, which, and maybe in retrospect, that really is true. I'm, I'm <laughs> to some degree it, it is, um, it wouldn't have been at the time, you know, we, we were also putting people in camps in Canada and in the United States, um, it so happens that we didn't get desperate enough to start gassing them in gas chambers, but we did put Japanese in camps for being Japanese. Uh, it's the difference is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot less stark, certainly at the time on the ground. Uh, and certainly early in the war, the, the difference is not very stark. If, if there was anything at all in terms of difference, but on the other hand, okay, well, Hitler's the aggressor and invading, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's the same, seems like the same kind of thing in Russia. You know, Russia has invaded in a, in a really a completely unprovoked way. As far as I know, anyway, Ukraine. So, yeah, so my instinct is to, is to come in and say, yeah, you know, take if you're Ukrainian, take up arms. If you're Russian, um, object no matter what they do to you. <laughs> and both in both of these, both a Christian behaving on one side of the line or the other, it depends on that context, and um, and the laying down of the life for for your brothers and sisters is therefore context dependent. What that means, it could mean the refusal to fight, it could mean the, the willingness to fight. But what what gets tricky there is then, how can I know? Does anyone really know enough about the context? <laughs> no, right, exactly. Maybe I'm missing. Like this is this is what I get. I, I'm a Canadian. I get news reporting in Canada. Um, you know, God knows what I am missing. Uh, that maybe if I knew, would totally justify Russia's actions. I, again, this is entirely hypothetical. I'm not. Trying, I'm not trying to defend Vladimir Putin or Russia, but as a, as a kind of conceptual thing you know what do i know one of the big changes in my shift from being a, being a mennonite theologically to becoming orthodox 
was actually was on this question. Um, I'll have to, I'll have to dig it. I'll have to dig it up out of my soul here. But like, I actually did wind up thinking a lot about this kind of stuff. And one of the one of the principal insights was that there was was to think that it was a good thing and an important thing that there's room in the Orthodox Church uh, for more people, for all sorts of people. That the kind of simplification of the call to peace, blessed are the peacemakers, winds up undergoing a kind of simplification, oversimplification in the Mennonite church, as though it's just a simple matter of saying no to war. Whereas I think what you're rightly suggesting is that, well, like context makes a big difference. And I think that, you know, I, I began to, I began to think of it in terms of like, in fact, I think there were a couple of podcasts um, on Ancient Faith Radio uh, where they had some military chaplains. There was a program. I, I, can't, I can't quite remember the details, but I listened to a couple of Orthodox military chaplains talk about this. It was so helpful. Um, and, and one of the things, one of the realizations I came to is like, there's something important about honoring the conscience of Christians. Honoring the conscience of Christians. And that you're going to have people who want to dedicate their lives to Christ, who also think that there's an outrage of justice here and that there's a kind of temporal solution to be had militarily. And although it's, although it's not the church and it's not, you know, the highest, the highest manifestation of principles, there is a kind of proximate good, approximate justice here. That's, that's being intuited by, by these faithful men who, who who think that there's an outrage of justice, uh, that's worth picking up arms to to try to address. And of course, there's there's questions of loyalty and obedience, right? Because the infantry, you know, infantry is not making decisions about about who and where to fight and what to you know what to do. Like that's principles of obedience there that you know are are very clear analogs to the kind of obedience that we're trying to cultivate as Orthodox Christians. And to like to on, even though it was, um, there's ambivalences, ambiguities, you know, there's real problems, but to honor the fact that some men are struck in the conscience that this is something, a way they need to serve their fellow, their fellow man, their fellow men and women, um, that, that in fact was important enough that it was a real, like, it's kind of a real problem. And that's why I bring up the sort of coward, the, the possibility of coward pacifism as cowardice, because it like, because if you oversimplify it, then it kind of just seems like you're, you're actually hiding from these issues of conscience. Now, then I think the question is, you know, there are going to be some conflicts that are more just than others, right? There are. And I think one of the important functions of the church is exactly to, through worship, through liturgy, through worship of the one true God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, manifest in the church, to shape those consciences, shape people capable of, of you know, about of, of making, making the distinction between when something is when something is going so wrong that it might be worth taking up arms to fight and when taking up arms to fight and subordinating yourself in obedience to those military authorities is a kind of idolatrousness and a kind of idolatry 
Like, no, there's no shortcut answer. And to me, like the Mennonite pacifism was a kind of shortcut answer where you don't, you're not, I don't think you, I don't think we're allowed one. Um, that, that yes, there are some instances where there's a kind of idolatry and I get, you know, your point about, about, about like, this is all dependent on what we know, but that's our life, right? You got, we have to take what we know and we need to cultivate a kind of distance from, from reliance on media because they're going to, they're going to spin the story. We're going to get the truth in church and we're going to get some, you know, more or perhaps less reliable information from the media. And we're going to have to make decisions when we don't know everything. But sometimes even in this, you know, situation of ambiguity, it's going to really seem like there's an aggressor here who's, who's done wrong. Like it kind of really seems clear that that Russia's screwing in the pooch here. Yeah, no, I think uh, that's right. But he, uh, but here's the rub for us, you know, and we we do we talk about this topic occasionally that um, it, it, the we can't have a pat <laughs> solution of you say you get the truth in the church. Here's the problem: we have two, you know predominantly orthodox supposedly orthodox christian nations fighting each other and let's just assume russia is the aggressor and is in the wrong the church has failed the church has failed as the conscience of russia pretty manifestly pretty radically uh depending on how you read kirill he is either uh a pathetic coward for refusing to stand up to putin and kind of says as much as he can or is is willing to do to try to to try to rein Putin in which is a, a pathetic act of cowardice on the part of the patriarch or he's straight up complicit and cares about other things much more than he cares about peace and the lives of the uh, you know his his brothers and sisters not just in Christianity but in orthodox Christianity dying in Ukraine so the church seems to have failed. Now, I mean, I think we can caveat a lot of that. And, and a lot of this is very, very important insofar as it's really important to recognize how very few actual Christians there are in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you know, something like 3% of the population of Russia shows up to church even on Pascha. There are um, tens, hundreds of thousands of people who call themselves Orthodox Christians in Russia who literally are not even baptized. So to some degree, that's just a flag and it has no meaning. And, and that's, but, but that's already a big problem, right? Um, but in theory, you know, the Russian state and Putin especially really likes to portray themselves as being, you know, very much a part of the Orthodox tradition and traditional Christian values and this and that. Um, and the church absolutely has a voice in Russia in a way that it doesn't enjoy in a place like Canada necessarily maybe we have more of a voice in canada frankly i don't know but it's there's a there's a there's a total failure you know either we're missing a really big piece of the puzzle that we just simply don't know or uh a complete abdication and failure on the part of the church so what what like what do we do about that i mean and like to frame it a little bit in terms of how we like to look at things on this on this show when you're talking a little bit about conscience there i think that 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 resonates a lot with me. That's really, really significant. Um, but one of the things I see being a, kind of an opportunity, if you will, for demonic patterns is when you can get both sides to be totally convinced of their conscience 
leading them aright when this isn't actually true. I mean, an easier place to see that would be, you know, the war in Iraq. Like, I look at that and I think of an American soldier going and doing what they're told. You know, I'm an American. I was living in the U.S. at the time that this happened. Canada didn't partake in in Iraq, but um, but and doing what they think is right to eliminate, uh, you know, a repressive dictator who had to go. Like I could see that soldier saying, all right. And some of them went just because that was their job, just because they were obeying. But I, I don't doubt for a second that a lot of them went because they, they believed, you know what, this does matter. We're going to liberate these people. And then every single Iraqi who, who took up arms and fought back uh, uh, and still, you know, through ISIS and various insurgencies might be fighting back. Like I can, I get that too. You, a foreign power just done invaded your country basically out of the clear blue sky on the basis of a complete and total lie, a total lie that the leader had was creating weapons of mass destruction, which was simply not true. They knew it was not true. They lied to our faces and then invaded Iraq. So, you know, the Iraqi defender, I could see that point of view too. So, I mean, here you can play, because human conscience is a fallible thing, there's an opportunity here for those demonic patterns to play us against each other. I wonder if there's some of that happening in Russia and Ukraine. I mean, especially when you look at propaganda, like what is what do the Russian soldiers know? What do the Russian people know? What they're being told? And if it's being sold, the way the Iraq war was sold to me, I, w- I never uh, embraced the Iraq war, but many people I know did who regret it because what we were being told was that this is a lunatic with basically nuclear weapons and bioweapons who could kill millions of people at the drop of a hat. We've got to stop this. That was a lie. How were we supposed to exercise our conscience in, in, in that kind of a situation? And if you're in Russia today and that's what's happening to you, and maybe that explains Kirill too. I don't know who's the Patriarch of Moscow for those who aren't familiar. Um, like I, I know there's so many opportunities here. Like, we can't squirm out, I think, and say, you know, we get the truth in church and then we sort of apply our conscience. Like, on the one hand, you're 100% that has to be right. On the other hand, the real, like, living that out is so much messier, you know. I mean, what would is what was it like? You know, what's 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 life like in the in the church for Maximus the Confessor? Like, what's it like? What's it like to live like you're the only one uh, who's who sees the craziness, and to be faithful to the church when when the patriarch and the clergy and and virtually all of the faithful uh, think think you're the asshole, right? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. What's the role of the church in this? Then, do you think? I mean, one of the, like one of the things. Okay, when you when you start th- talking, you know, talking about this, my my initial instinct, and it's like nothing is foolproof, right? I think that's part of the lesson. There's no foundation. The fact that Christ is the one foundation that we have means there's no other way of guaranteeing faithfulness than Christ, 
right? There's no formula. There's no pattern. Like there's no, there's no blueprint for a faithful church that as long as you're doing, checking these boxes, then your church will be faithful. No such thing. Um, my first instinct, which is not then again for, for that very reason of kind of a foundational solution to the problem. My first instinct is like, is to remember that the church is local church manifests at the local level, right? Not the church is not the patriarch. Um, you know, our archbishop is, is Christ to us and he's the head of our church, but fundamentally Christ is present in the local liturgy and the local, like, right. The local liturgy, that's where the conscience is formed. And that's where you do have the capacity to, if, you know, remain, remain faithful to the whole tradition that's more than just being Russian or just being Ukrainian or just being Constantinopolitan or just being Canadian, right? Like that's where Christ is manifest in such a way that you can actually, you know, seek to transcend those, those seek to transcend those identities that, that can very, so, so very much cloud your judgment. Um, right like you you have to you, you do have to honor your you have to honor your uh, archbishops and metropolitans and patriarchs and so far so you have to honor those heads of heads of the church but like be just be care be be careful be clear about what is and is not happening right like fidelity to Kirill, fidelity to um for us in the OCA, fidelity to uh, Metropolitan Tikhon is not who has con- who has condemned the war unequivocally and the Russian invasion as of I think as of today. Anyway, the statement came out recently that our our local, well, semi-local part of the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church in America, to which Greg and I both belong, has unequivocally condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I believe every every other Orthodox Church besides the Church of Russia has has right even the even it. right like what 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 you pointed out whatever it was a few weeks ago even metropolitan anufri yes the metropolitan under, of yes. kiev under moscow yeah, that's it's right. like yeah. this is quite, quite unequivocally quite unequivocally fact, like yeah. you want to speak about sort of organizing your thoughts and your conscience like in those early days when for me i'm not a politically connected person i don't i like all those po- politics, history, history, politics, and those areas, like I'm not, that's not my bag. I don't know what's going on. And I don't, I went hearing that, hearing that Metropolitan Anufri was the one, like he seems like a, he's for many years now seemed like a very sensible voice. When I heard him, you know, straight up oppose, oppose this, I'm like, okay, I think this is a voice. I think this is a voice that's, that's trustworthy. Well, I, th- I think you make a good point there. You know, the Patriarch of Moscow, Kirill. Is not the church. He's he's the patriarch, <laughs> right? Uh, and and we we have to affirm that he has a capacity to be wrong. We think uh, of it as a like as a the, the patriarch of metropolitan metropolitan. It's as primus inter pares, right? First among equals. But that means okay, they may be first, but they are truly equals, right? This is a difference between between Eastern ecclesiology and and Roman ecclesiology, right? Like the they're truly you know they're truly equals. It's a it's a spiritual administrative headship, but like that doesn't mean that fidelity to that person is the total of the faith, right? We don't have a magisterium the same way. It's not that right. That's a, it doesn't work. 
it doesn't work the way the Pope works. I think one of the difficult things with it is that you you need. It feels to me like it's almost impossible. I don't want this to be true, but it feels like it's almost impossible to really know in the moment without the assistance of hindsight and some time going by. You know, what's really happened, what's really going on, and who's really on the right side of things. You know, is Maximus the confessor? You mentioned him. No, that's a doctrinal matter, but there's still there's there's a similar pattern. Is Maximus the confessor, you know, a lunatic stirring up trouble for no reason who more or less deserves almost his fate? Um, or the one voice crying out <laughs> for for what's right? I mean, I really cannot imagine somehow... And maybe that's important too. I really cannot imagine somehow turning around 50 years from now and being like, yeah, what, you know, Kirill of Moscow was the one and only person who, who we should have been listening to as Orthodox Christians about the invasion of Russia because he's the only one who seemed to support it. It doesn't seem like we're heading in that direction. But, but my point is that, you know, just to say, you can't just scoot out and say, well, consensus then or something like, well, you know, every other bishop's condemned this. Ergo, that's, we know that this is the wrong thing to do. It's not that simple either because it has to come down to what's true. And the truth is the truth, regardless of consensus against it or for it. And consensus is, as, is achieved as much in retrospect as it is in, in, in the moment or, or ahead of time, right? It's not just what this group here happens to, to uh, mutually agree to. It's like we had that, that agreement has to be continuous and ongoing. Um, and and consented to uh, in retrospect, right? We have to when all the when all when everything becomes clear and the truth uh, and the truth is out, you know, that's what th- that makes a difference. And in fact, you know, so I you know I kind of rag on the Mennonites a little bit, but I, and I, and I think when I when I speak about my criticisms, it has to do with how how the principle of pacifism plays out. Practically, has a lot of P's. Uh, ecclesiologically, I think actually it winds up being an ecclesiological error. But for that very, for, for that very, very reason, like we've got a lot of scholars, I've got friends who are, you know, who who work with the ideas and are doing so in a res- in a responsible way and so forth, um, and in a careful like they're trying to be honest and true as well. And there's a lot of insight there. For example, the reason why I bring this up. Um, you know, I've got a colleague who's, who's talking a lot about patience, is doing a work on patience, right? Pacifism is patience, which which just speaks to what you're talking about, right? I think that's right. I think I think that's really important. But one of the things, one of the things that we need to learn as Christians, and those who who are avowed pacifists can 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 help remind us that one of the things you need is patience, and that includes taking the time in hope. Right, um, to to see you know to let the truth out to see what becomes manifest, and not right. You can't just be knee jerk reacting to your to your passions at an individual level, or a or a national level. Now sometimes you don't have the sometimes you don't have the luxury. Right, your nation gets attacked, and you have to you have to start acting before you know what's going on. And that's part, that's part of the reality. And I think the church is big enough. I think Christ is big enough, um, to, to, to enable forgiveness when, when one's actions go awry of the truth, 
uh, but that can only be known in retrospect. Um, you do have to, add, but that's why it's always important to be, you know, back to this idea of shaping, but and always trying for patience, patience to, to, to let, you know, let the truth manifest because the truth will out. It will eventually. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's a, one of the things that I've always appreciated in the Orthodox tradition that gets brought up a lot in these conversations is you know, that insider saying Basil that, okay, well, if you go off and you be a soldier and you've, and you've killed someone, uh, you know, you come back and you have a period of, of repentance. I think, I think you're supposed to stay away from communion for three years. Um, it's because, and, and the way you sort of have to read, read what he's saying there, it, he, it's an understanding that you may have to go do that, but it's still a thing that to which you're going to have for which you're going to have to be forgiven anyway, because it, it may be the, it may be the least bad thing to do, but it's still bad. It's still a sin, you know, um, it, and there's not, I, I appreciate the push away from some kind of way of looking at any ethical or even moral dilemma or problem, including war, wherein we have to decide, you know, this, this is okay, like fully okay what you did, or this is, you know, fully wrong, as though everything is binary. He, he has this space to say, well, this is a thing you might need to do for a variety of reasons. And if you do, then it's a sin. Um, and you'll, you're going to need to be forgiven. And what you're saying there that, you know, we, we'll need the capacity to be forgiven because sometimes we have to act without actually knowing all, all the details. And ultimately, life, all of life is kind of one big, right? We don't, there's so much we'll never know, actually. The truth, to say the truth while it is kind of an eschatological statement, ultimately, there's many, many things. I'll never know the consequences of a lot of things I've done. Uh, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll never know absolutely all the details about the second world war or this invasion of Ukraine or, you know, the crusades or whatever you pick your thing. We'll never know. Sometimes we end up knowing enough where it starts to feel fairly clear. Like it's a good, good thing Hitler didn't win, you know? Um, but, but we're always missing something. Yeah. And like, and just, I mean, your point about reaching, uh, about looking back to world war two for its moral clarity is a, is a really good one and very instructive. Um, it's a, but it's a two edged it's a two edged sword like be, because it's equally a pitfall to think that because the war as a whole seems to be justified in retrospect for reasons x y and z that seem to give it moral clarity uh does that mean that everything that was done by allied forces is somehow then just and justified like are you mad all sorts of all sorts of things happened that are regrettable for which one must seek forgiveness, even if sort of teleologically it, it fits within a, a within a, fi- a final purpose and a final end. Um, that that's you know justifiable. I just yeah, I just don't think we can presume upon that kind of moral clarity. things that happens here i think if you look at sort of demonic patterns is that the the trains this was so tricky and so muddy all the time you know the 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 train the the road to becoming 
Hitler <laughs> starts usually in the same place in the same for the same reasons as the people who oppose him, you know. Um the the road to being Putin begins with being the latest hero rising up to represent our nation, you know, over and against Western domination, um, these unjust societies in the West with their corrupt ways uh, who, you know, are, are taking from us our culture, taking from us our identity. Uh, it's threatening us militarily with a much more powerful, you know, army. NATO is vastly more militarily powerful than Russia, making us feel insecure and threatened and scared. Um, and uh, and and along comes a hero, Vladimir Putin. Now you tell that story that way, and you know it's it's quite understandable. And you might even think, hurrah! You know, you might you might support the guy early on. And then, given a given enough time, it's the justification, the self justification. Then, then you become the monster. This is what um, Frank Herbert's book Dune is all about. And I hope the new movies will actually get it when they're all said and done. Uh, the jury is still out because it's only we've only seen one of of three of the new movies. Certainly, the uh, um, the older movie, the um, what's his name, David Lynch movie, did not get this. Um, this is this is the plot of Dune, you know which is one of the reasons it's one of my absolute favorite books is he's one of the few authors I've ever understood who gets it. We love the hero story, right? We love, we love the one, the chosen one who saves the people. Herbert understands that that's also how every story of every Hitler, of every dictator, uh, you know, of every Putin, every Gaddafi, you name it. That's how all of their stories began as well. And it's a kind of a terrifying thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like that's the context in which to understand the 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 story of Christ, right? That's that's the, that's why throwing your lot in with Christ is both necessary, the, on, the only true gateway to God, the only true path to God, and that it will also entail a rejection of your family and your ties of kin and nation. Um. Right, because he's because the the world is full of hero stories, um, but only but but all of them all of them flirt with exactly this possibility of becoming the the story of the origins of of despotism. Uh, that only that Christ alone, you know, that fidelity to Christ alone, you know, makes it possible to avoid. Um, and so for that reason, like, <sighs> that fidelity to Christ, though, that has to manifest as a kind of transcending of one's familial bonds, transcending of one's national bonds that has to, that has to unite you, your union with Christ ha has to be prior to any nation that you might conceivably pick up arms to serve. That's how the story works. Even, even if you go do that. Even if you wind up going to do that. And if you can't... Um, and if you can't reconcile that, if you can't subordinate your loyalty to nation, 
beneath your loyalty to Christ, uh, then you then you then you haven't been loyal to Christ. Christ is the true hero. Where all other all other hero stories, at best, are stories of saints who then point to Christ, and more typically and at worst, are in fact ersatz heroes, false heroes who only appear to be heroes, but who, in your fidelity, uh, become become idols and demons and despots and tyrants. Um, that's like. I, that's the thing it's we we discussed i think it was on our episode about marriage we talked a bit about hierarchies of truths and sort of hierarchies of goods um that within demonic patterns get inverted or or perverted in various ways that's i feel like that's what you're kind of laying out here that it's not to say that commitment to one's nation or country or family or people is a is a bad but it has to be put put in its in its right place well below one's loyalty to christ as a guiding as a guidepost it's um very much a sub light uh to to the true light and when it's placed at the center of think of one's thinking instead of placing christ at the center of one's thinking which we're, we're always trying to do here uh, it becomes uh, a tool. It can become a, a, a demonic tool to get one to do really very horrifically awful things. I think that's right. And time and time of war is an especially fraught time because that's exactly the time when you're going to be called to lend a hand and 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 take up arms in the cause. Uh, in a way that a- asks you to to put that above all things, and that's that's a lie, right? Even if you even if you wind up as a matter of conscience, wind up having to take up arms, it just can't be the highest good. You cannot, by definition, you cannot be defending the highest good with those arms. It can't be defended that way. It can only be defended through faithfulness. And in fact, for that very reason, doesn't need defense in the way we normally use that term. That's really helpful. I, I, I really like that phrasing of it. What you're defending by taking up arms is potentially a good, but it will never be the highest good. You, the kingdom of God is not defended by those means. It just isn't yeah. by, by definition. Ukraine right? might be, Canada might be, mm-hmm. but the kingdom of God is not. Well, maybe that's a good note to stop on for this half of the episode. I want to ask you in the second half, we'll turn back to some maybe more difficult matters because I want to ask you how, kind of return back to the question of how the church fails when it fails to to bring us to that kind of uh, insight. But we'll call this, uh, this half here. And uh, if you'd like to keep going with us uh, on that topic, uh, do please join us at patreon.com slash men among demons. Uh, just $5 a month currently gets you access to the second half of all of our episodes. We'd love to have you join us uh, and join the conversation there. You can send us messages, leave uh, comments on our posts. Uh, we do respond back and, uh, and love hearing from our, our patrons in that way. And here's a little bit of a taste of what you'll hear on the second half of today's episode. 
One thing I've often said to my students that I'd, I'd like them to all tattoo on their foreheads, a tattoo on my own <laughs> forehead, is the quote from St. Simeon, the new theologian. And this is a direct verbatim quote. The past was terrible. <laughs> is that the end of the quote? St. Simeon, the new theologian. Is that the end of the, the quote? quote? <laughs> the past was terrible. Now, in his own context in the 11th century, he's talking about people who hearken back to the apostolic period and say, yeah. see, that was when it was really good. Right. That's when we had it all right. Uh, and, and, and he's saying, no, no, you have no idea. You have no idea that, you know, it, if anything, it's easier now. Um, don't, don't, um, Harken back to this as some kind of glorious golden age yeah. when everything was good. All right, Greg. Well, I'll see you over there in the second half. On the other side. Your support makes this podcast possible. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash men among demons for exclusive content and to join the conversation. 